Hey there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Seth. And I'm Zach. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are. We are, we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are the Classic Sorry, Gaming Brothers. Sorry, I was brothers. adjusting my microphone. You were adjusting your microphone in the studio? I was adjusting my microphone in the studio. Did you move it? I thought our, I thought our microphones were fixed. Oh, I think it was ghost. the ghost of the, the ghost of Classic Gaming Brothers HQ. The ghost of Classic Gaming Brothers past. The Lost Brother. The Lost Puzzle Brother. That's a fun joke that nobody gets because the puzzle episode never aired. I know, it happens. And we'll never do another puzzle episode yeah. ever again. Nope. We recorded a perfect puzzle episode that Zach <laughs> proceeded to drop down in the toilet by accident. Oopsies. Yeah, I dropped the I dropped the the the, the tape as it were. The tape. Yeah, because we yeah. record this on cassette tape. <laughs> no, it's on reel to reel. Oh, reel to reel. It's like in a studio. Like in a music studio, you know? We have yeah. those big big honking reel to reel recorders and yep. and we have a guy sitting behind a plexiglass sheet and he gives us the thumbs up when we're doing well and gives us the thumbs down when we need to stop. He's giving us the thumbs down right now. That's that's what yep. he's doing. He also goes by Doug, our corrections. The corrections officer, that's right. He's not a corrections officer. He is our producer, corrections guy and a number of other things well anyway we've gone on a little bit too much and i'm sure zach will trim this up a little bit so what have you been uh recently been playing zach well seth recently i've been playing something that's not a video game oh yeah what's that uh i've been playing around with the windows animation festival cd which i have to thank you for finding because i i have been looking for in the sense that every now and then i'll go on google and i'll plug in a bunch of keywords that i think would probably find this thing and i have not been able to find it and this has been going on for years like since i was in college so like like i entered college like almost 10 years ago for about 10 years i would say i've been trying to figure out what this program is to the point where i had previously asked seth what this program was and i think he just threw out some random suggestion and just never got back to me on it and i would go to reddit and i would go to like uh, tip of my tongue which is a subreddit dedicated to people finding things or tip of my joystick which is a video game variant of that and i asked people there and i got a lot of suggestions from a lot of helpful people but none of them were correct and then one day seth and i were talking about it and seth through his magic of googling managed to find it i think you said you found it because you actually found it via another thing that you were looking up and it happened to hit the right keyword for this thing. Right. So the Windows Animation Festival CD is adjacent to a VHS tape of a thing called the Computer Animation Festival, which was similar but not Windows Animation Festival. And I knew that there were there was there was something called Computer Animation Festival, and I knew we had this on Windows. So when I Googled commun- Computer Animation Festival windows the first image result was the book that i knew was the the right book yeah anyway the windows animation festival cd is as i've kind of alluded to not a game it's actually a program that came bundled with a book published by weight group press the book and cd came out uh, around 1994 and it was primarily a guide on the quote-unquote state-of-the-art computer animations from that time period. We owned a copy of the book slash CD a long time ago. In fact, I remember the CD, but I don't remember the book. But I also assume that our dad might have put the book on our bookcase. 
And that's why I don't remember the book. And I think we kept the CD on a, in a jewel case with other CDs. And uh, I remember in this program, you would walk around a movie theater and you would watch various shorts in different cinemas. So you'd enter like theater two or theater three, and you would just watch various animation shorts. And sure enough, that's exactly what you do. Um, so my memory was mostly correct. Uh, there was a couple of things that I think I got wrong. Like I thought it was a bit more fluid than it was. It was, it's really kind of like point and click mist style animation to get from point A to point B. I think I was like picturing it more of like a quake, like 3D environment when it's nothing like that. Oh no. Yeah, it's very, very simple. However, my memories of some of the animations were pretty spot on because one of the first animations I did watch was this one that I remembered very clearly of a robot who drinks a beer and then just pees on a wall. He pees, he pees fire. He does pee fire. And the other video I watched, which was one that I remembered clearly, was a uh, ATST, literally from Star Wars, like dancing around and like it does a little flip. Um, and it's called like like shy robot or something like that what i didn't realize was just how very corporate this cd was like this doesn't feel like something for your average consumer because a majority of it is like animation demos for logos so it's people being like here's how we do our logo or here's how you could do your logo like this feels like something that someone in a corporate office would receive or like a college maybe like an academic product yeah uh, you know, yeah like, yeah potentially yeah here, here's some fun things that you can do but realistically this is what you're going to be doing right yeah i'm pretty sure the book itself isn't like a guide on how to do these i think it's just a companion to probably like a lesson potentially another book because the writer of the book whose name escapes me right now has written other books on animation um when i found him on amazon he had like three or four other books that are textbooks on animation don't know why i enjoyed it as much as a kid but you know what i'm enjoying it again now <laughs> That's we didn't all have a lot matters. of video games as kids yeah it's sometimes just watching watching a little robot chug a beer and take a massive pee on a wall out of a fire <laughs> it's just enough that you need that is the windows animation festival cd that's what i've been uh, wasting my time on i guess you can say and I, th I do thank seth for getting it running for me seth what about you what have you been playing i have been uh, emulating a windows 98 environment where i've been playing some midtown madness the first one yeah we talked a bit about pcem i think in the last episode right we did a lot about it on that program, I've been playing Midtown Madness. Uh, it's a 1999 racing game that was developed by Angel Studios and published by the company that's going to be pretty much the highlight of this episode, Microsoft. We actually had the demo of the game, which uh, we played a lot. And I believe the way the demo worked was you were restricted with the type of race that you could play and yeah. the type of car that you could use. But the one race that they allowed you to play was cruising. And there was no time limit with cruising. So you could just go cruising down the streets. You you couldn't change pedestrian or traffic. It was all locked in because of the demo. Uh, however, you could just play and just drive around. And it was great. It was really cool to interact with like a driving game that just lets you kind of free roam around uh, a city. So... 
I feel like the next game that gave me the same feeling that Midtown Madness gave me was Grand Theft Auto. Well, technically Grand Theft Auto 3, not Grand Theft Auto 1. But Grand Theft Auto 3 gave me like Midtown Madness 5. Where they give you, it's just they give you a car. They say, here's the city. That's it. You figure it out on your own. You drive around. You do what you want. There's, There's a sense of freedom that you can only feel as a child who doesn't know how to drive. Being able to play and drive a car in an environment that you can just go where you want. Uh, So if you want to take that right turn or your left turn, or if you want to go check out the airport, you can do it. And Midtown Madness takes place in Chicago and the Windy City. The Windy City of Chicago. That's and that's what the announcer says. Zach's just not doing that for fun. And yeah, so I've I've been uh, playing it. Uh, it is kind of a trip playing it with my experienced eyes, as it were. Um, I, I've been playing some blitz races to try to unlock some cars. A blitz race is just you have to get through like four or five checkpoints in a specific amount of time, and they may be like either in a straight line or spread throughout the city. Right. Uh, okay, I, I remember that. I was driving the Pans Panos Roadster, Panaz Roadster. Panaz, oh. Yeah. Hey, Matt, if you're listening, let us know. <laughs> it's a Roadster car. It's, uh, you know, low to the ground. It's got its wheels, like, separated from the body kind of thing. I do want to say that the controls are looser than I thought they were. So the physics tend to be a little... I don't know. I guess because I'm more used to, like, games that the cars feel heavier like cyberpunk uh even the grand theft auto series the car just has some weight to it so like when you take a turn it doesn't like immediately spin out or like you know like it goes with the turn uh midtown madness does not have that uh the physics actually are quite loose there is a physics settings i didn't play with it but maybe i can get it to a level where i feel like it's reasonable but i feel like it was cranked up pretty high and i feel like if you go really low it becomes silly i know that there's some silly cheats that you can enable with midtown madness is where like if you hit something it immediately gets destroyed oh Um, yeah 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 there's the no friction yeah, no friction cheat, which I believe is present in Midtown Madness 1 and 2. Yeah, and then there's another, I think it's only in 2, where if you press your honk, you launch a mailbox from your car. And oh, yeah. Flying, and you can That's spam fun. mailboxes. Midtown Madness 2 takes place in London and... San Francisco. San Francisco, that's right. Oh, because of the big hills. Between the two, Midtown Madness 1 and Midtown Madness 2, you can play in Chicago or San Francisco or London. It's pretty cool. Anyway, we're, we're talking about something related today because we're talking about something that I would say a lot of people are familiar with, but they might not know they're familiar with it, especially if you are of a certain age and grew up in a uh, Windows Microsoft dominated household. So if your house wasn't a a Macintosh house or an Apple house uh, and you had a Windows computer, then this would kind of seem familiar, at least some of the games that were available. Because we're talking about the Microsoft Entertainment Pack. Yeah, and for this particular episode, we're going to talk about the origins of the Microsoft Entertainment Pack, and it is actually packs. Yeah, there's a lot of them. (laughs) There is a lot of Microsoft Entertainment Packs. There is also a lot of games to talk about. So what we're going to do is really talk about the games that we're most familiar with. Uh, So they're going to be an obscure Entertainment Pack, which is the Entertainment Pack designed for 
the Packard Bell. Yes. So we're going to talk about the games that specifically were bundled with the Packard Bell computer. And so if you did not have a Packard Bell, if you had like a, a Gateway or a Hewlett Packard or a number of other computers that were available at the time, uh, you may have had a different bundle of games. Yeah. Our family had Packard Bell 486 DX2. So that was the computer Seth and I grew up with. It was, uh, I think, a pretty venerable system for the time. Uh, I haven't looked up the specs of it in a while, but I think it was like whopping like 500k of RAM. So that was, yeah. yeah. 512k of RAM. It had 250 megabytes for storage. Not bad. And I believe it was a 122 megahertz processor. Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting fact, though, today, you could probably emulate this computer that we owned in your phone. Yeah. <laughs> definitely and it probably cost our parents like three thousand dollars oh yeah 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 for something that ultimately i mean i guess it served our family well but stuff compared to today is is like night and day in regards to the technology anyway to get a bit into the microsoft entertainment pack we kind of decided that we're also just going to talk a bit about microsoft first because we haven't really talked about microsoft we've, we've done you know histories of atari we've done histories of sega histories of nintendo but microsoft which is a big player in video games now has its own place as well for those who don't know microsoft was founded in 1975 by bill gates and paul allen in albuquerque new mexico uh, gates and allen were actually two friends who grew up interested in computer programming and in the 1970s that interest kind of started to grow into what could potentially become a business while in college, Gates and Allen um, were discussing how they could potentially build a basic interpreter for the MITS Altair 8800 microcomputer. Uh, the MITS Altair is a hobby computer. It was a computer that wasn't really used for colleges and stuff. You would you would buy it from the shop and assemble it. And uh, it was a very basic computer and what it could do, but it couldn't run basic. <laughs> uh, basic being the, the programming language. So, they were having this discussion about how they could potentially design this basic interpreter, and Gates called up the company Mits uh, and told them they had a functioning interpreter. They hadn't even started it. Uh, so uh, he, he just called them up and he said, hey, we, we have a functional interpreter. We're going to show it off to you guys. So they had to get to work on it. And they didn't even have access to an Altair at the time. Uh, they ended up having to build what was essentially an emulator for an Altair and then build a basic interpreter within that emulator. And they showed it off to Mits and it worked perfectly. So Mix bought it and distributed the software as Altair Basic. In 75, Allen and Gates officially established the company Microsoft, with the name being short for Microcomputer Software, as they were building software for microcomputers. One of their earliest products was Microsoft Basic, which would become the dominant programming language for computers like the Commodore 64 and Apple II. Uh, Microsoft also worked alongside Apple to develop various hardware cards for the Apple II, such as the Z80 soft card, which allowed the Apple II to run an operating system called CPM. Now, in the 1980s, IBM reached out to Microsoft to develop a disk operating system, similar to the CPM operating system, to, which would be then bundled with their IBM PCs. Gates would end up purchasing the, uh, the CPM clone 86DOS from its creator, Tim Patterson, of Seattle Computer Products. The final purchase ended up being around $75,000, which doesn't seem like a lot, but if you 
take the 1980s money and you make it 2022 monies, that would be $258,000. Gates would rename this program MS-DOS from 86DOS and work a deal to allow them not only to distribute the program for IBM PCs, but also retain the licensing rights and license MS-DOS to anyone, which was a very good decision. Yes, especially because if you think about it, he bought MS-DOS for $75,000. MS-DOS made them millions of dollars. And it's all because of that licensing deal. Yeah, exactly. In 1982, after watching a demonstration at Comdex of a graphical user interface by Visicorp, Microsoft said, that's a great idea. We need a graphical user interface for DOS. And a graphical user interface is just really kind of what it sounds like. It's it's essentially an interface that the person who's using the computer is able to use pictures and graphics to be able to navigate through the computer. Windows is a graphical user interface. You may have programs at work that are also graphical user interfaces that may be front ends of back ends. So like Salesforce uses like a graphical user interface for some of their front end products. So Microsoft saw the Comdex demonstration and said, let's do that. They then began on their work of their next big project, which would be released in 1985, which was Microsoft Windows. Windows would really take the PC world by storm, and it soon became one of the standard operating systems for any non-Apple device. In many ways, Windows became synonymous with home computer, much in the way that IBM was synonymous with personal computer. And of course, there were games on these machines, because when you build something like a computer, the first thing people do is figure out how to make work faster. The second thing they figure out how to do is how to play games, because the one thing that humans like to do is slack off. (laughs) Actually, I think on the Microsoft Entertainment Pack, I think on the official box art for one of the packs, it says something like, like, are you tired of that boring meeting why don't you take a break and play a little game of like blackjack or something like it literally tells you to install this on your work computer in fact they were advertised for casual gaming on office computers and some slogans as zach mentioned was only a few minutes between a meeting get it a quick game of klotsky <laughs> that's right that's it yeah where you had to like maneuver rectangles around and there was also a, a slogan such as no more boring coffee breaks I, I think my boss would give me a serious amount of crap if he saw me playing solitaire or some sort of game. And now we just turn to our phones. But you have to put yourself back in, into 1985, 1986. Cell phones weren't a, really a thing. You're sitting at your desk and you don't want to work. And you can't access a, like a phone. And maybe you don't like your coworkers. What's there to do? Fortunately for you, Windows came bundled with games. To this day, there are games that are just like part of the operating system of Windows. And many of those games are spiritual successors or successors or the actual game that were originally graded for the Windows Entertainment Pack. I do want to mention and talk a little bit about something that's not really a video game before we get into the video games. And that is the different navigators that were around during this time, because I think they're just unique. And I don't know if we're going to be able to get another episode in to talk about specifically navigators. Yeah, I don't see a Microsoft Bob episode coming out anytime soon. So navigators were a unique thing of their time. Uh, As they 
really came out when personal computing started to become more of a commonplace household product, right? When when the computer moved from being uh, a collegiate and government-only type and big business type situation to being in people's homes and being in office places and really how it is today where we're kind of surrounded by possibly more than one computer. People were new to computers. And not only were they new to computers, they were new to operating systems and graphical user interface. You may have really this spread of differences between the user base. You may have users that were intimately familiar with mainframe systems where you're used to entering command prompts to getting execution of programs. Uh, So you may be familiar with DOS or maybe another proprietary mainframe system that, that you would have at your work or something where, you know, you enter in commands and the program would run through whatever that command is. Or you have the user that was intimidated by that, but maybe not so intimidated by a graphical user interface, but maybe needed a little bit of help understanding what value does the computer add to my house? Like, what does it do? So many of the computers came bundled with a thing that was called a navigator. And some of them, I think many of them, booted into the navigator instead of into the actual operating system. Yeah, I think you could set it to do that, yeah. Oh, you actually had to opt into the basic Windows setup. On the Packard Bell, Packard Bell had a Packard Bell navigator that booted in, that greeted you and said, Welcome from Packard Bell. We offer you two computing environments to choose from, Packard Bell's navigator or Microsoft Windows. You may also begin by taking a quick lesson on using the mouse. And at the bottom, you had to check in, in the future, please boot me into regular Windows. <laughs> and the Packer Bell Navigator was a home. It was like a, a virtual home that you could walk around and pick things up that were relevant to computing. So if you wanted to write a note, you could go and look for your pad of paper and open up your pad and paper and it would open up a Word document. If you wanted to go online, you can go to where like, it was like this like weird internet den where there was like various different applications up on the the shelf if you wanted to play a video game you could go to your your bookcase where there were applications such as entertainment they also had sub navigators such as workspace and kid space where you could essentially be in an office space with interactive like you could click different parts of the uh, environment and like the lights would come on and off which wouldn't do anything in regards to opening a document or it would just be like fun and you could file your paperwork in a filing cabinet and kid space was like workspace except it was fun and there was like um backgrounds they could shift there was this weird creature that kind of showed you what to do you could be in space you could be in the jungle and you would have to drag programs onto a rocket ship and you had to clean up sometimes like if you had too many programs it would make your kid space filled with clutter and you could put things like on shelves and kind of organize them and generally uh, regular windows had microsoft bob so many of these companies that created their computers like a packard bell would have their own navigator and their own bundles of software so zach and i are most familiar with that since that's the computer we owned so if you owned a different computer you may have your own navigator experience microsoft bob was very similar uh, it was a little more cartoony than packard bell navigator packard yeah, bell navigator yeah 
was very uh, very photorealistic, where Microsoft Bob was more of a cartoon. People also remember Microsoft Bob probably better because characters from Microsoft Bob would later become part of Microsoft like Windows's experience. Uh, that being Clip It, who was a little paperclip who advised you how to write uh, letters, and his name was changed to Clippy. So if you want to know where Clippy came from, he came from Microsoft Bob. Right, which was a navigator to help you understand how to use essentially the Windows. Well, as we mentioned, though, a lot of games were coming out uh, for Windows and a lot of games were bundled with Windows. Uh, One of the first being a game Reversi, which was never actually part of the Microsoft Entertainment Pack. But I just want to mention Reversi. It's one of those games where you have to like try to match up colors and stuff. Uh, The Microsoft Entertainment Pack, however, offered a wide variety of casual computer games for the operating system. The first of the packs, Pack 1, launched in 1990 and was compatible with Windows 3.1. Pack 2 and Pack 3 launched in 91. Pack 4 launched in 1992. And the Best of Pack launched in 1994. Also, weirdly enough, there was a Game Boy Color version released in 2000 for some reason. I just think it's very odd though. It literally like starts up with the Game Boy logo, and then it says Microsoft Entertainment Pack, and then it boots into a screen that looks like a Windows 95 desktop, and you have like five games to choose from, and it says Microsoft at the bottom. It's just very weird to see Microsoft on a Game Boy. Anyway, there were a number of games that do qualify under the uh, Entertainment Pack for Windows. A lot of games that um, were kind of sorted into these packs. However, Seth and I didn't really grow up with any of the actual Microsoft Entertainment Packs. Again, we grew up with the Entertainment Pack for Packard Bell, specifically the 1995 Entertainment Pack for Packard Bell, which came with a diverse group of games that were all essentially sourced from Windows Entertainment Packs. Uh, These games include Dr. Blackjack, Fuji Golf, Jigsawed, Rattler Race, Chess, Ski Free, Life Genesis, and Rodent's Revenge. So we're going to talk about these particular games. If you're interested in like Minesweeper, that was from Pack 1 and eventually became bundled with Windows 3.1 and forever. Uh, and Free Cell was included with Windows 95. Those games originated from various different Windows Entertainment packs. Uh, we may in the future talk about another, we may do another Windows Entertainment episode where we talk about another collection of games that are not the ones that we're talking about now, but uh, only the future can tell. To start off with talking about the games here... Uh, Uh, Dr. Blackjack was a video game that was developed by Mike Blaylock and uh, released in 1992. And Dr. Blackjack was based on the card game Blackjack, as the name implies. Uh, If you were surprised about that, I don't know what to say. Uh, the game really plays in a in a window, as many of these window games do, and the window primarily has a big green box that's in it, and it's bordered by the gray window of windows, and there's some red numbers on black borders running across the top, where like your scores, so there's like your count, your true count, your long-term winnings, your session winnings, what your current bet is, and there's a smiley face that says the result, and the smiley face changes its face depending on whether your hand was a good hand a great hand a neutral hand or a bad hand and will be happy when you win and sad when you lose and i just i always thought that was funny i just remember he has degrees of smiling though so i give a really good hand he smiles really big and at the bottom of the screen there were seven buttons which would be active depending on the context of the game and they really look like the buttons actually the pro program looks like it was built in like visual basic which it probably was 
Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if it was. And the seven buttons on the bottom were uh, split, double, stay, hit, deal, plus 10, minus 10 uh, for controlling the plus 10 and the minus 10 controlling the bet value uh, and the rest controlling the flow of the game and the game plays like blackjack as it would be and now you i just clarify the plus 10 and the minus 10 were what you set your bet at before you committed like you couldn't change your bet <laughs> like you couldn't change your bet once you committed that would make that would make blackjack a lot more uh appealing to me if you could just change yeah, your bet change in the your bet of it. be like never mind yeah <laughs> i'm gonna bet three thousand dollars uh, i'm gonna take that back let's bet five <laughs> the minimum bet was 10 so you couldn't go lower than 10 but i i do remember playing dr blackjack i did i wouldn't say i played it a lot but i played it enough that i always wanted to do the things that you couldn't normally do and play uh such as split and double i didn't know really i didn't know double stood for double down i didn't know that and i didn't know when the circumstances came up that you could double down or when you could split. In fact, it comes up when you have duplicates of cards. However, I do remember when you split or double down weird, like the, there would be like a little thin purple box that would come around your like split cards and oh, yeah. kind of like set them aside. And like, I was always curious as a kid, like how that happened. I've played a lot of blackjack and it took a long time of me playing blackjack to actually encounter circumstances where I witnessed somebody double down. <laughs> it just, it doesn't happen often. Right. Well, at least for me. But uh, I, I did see it happen. And uh, the next game, Fuji Golf. Uh, now, Fuji Golf, as the name implies, is a golf game. So, you know, these these games don't have to be super, super complicated, nor do they have to have weird names. They can just kind of just describe what it is because you're really just playing this game in the middle of a meeting. Now, this game was programmed by Chiki Nagai while uh, they were working at ANK Software and was published by Microsoft in 1991. Now, while playing Fuji Golf, the player would go through 18 holes of golf, while during the game you'd be going uh, against or with the direction of the wind, and there would also be a computer that would just generate your competition, the scores. You wouldn't watch the computer do it, the computer would just tell you what it did. Oh, do you watch the computer do it? I, I haven't played Fuji Golf in forever. Uh, I don't remember, personally. I'm going to say... It just generated it, uh, and if I lied, I'm sorry. That that one Fuji Golf fanatic is going to get at us if if you've lied. They, that's right. If they do, if they if that one Fuji Golf fanatic reaches out to us, no matter what year you're listening to this, I'll give you a free game if you let me know what actually happened. Just so you're aware, that computer was also very good. The computer would always score very low to the point that the game is actually very difficult to beat. However, a skilled enough player could beat out the computer, assuming that the computer doesn't essentially cheat. Because the computer would sometimes give itself a negative 15 score. <laughs> good. And on 18 holes, I would say that's pretty good. Yeah, I would too. The window, it takes place in a window. The main window is an isometric view of the golf course. And there is also a top-down view of the golf course. And then at the bottom of the, underneath the view of you in the golf course, there is your club selection where you can select the correct club that you need and then you would be able to pick where your ball was going you could actually see how far the maximum distance was and where it would be going on the top down view which was helpful and then you had a like bar that would fill up and you'd pick which 
where you would go by clicking quickly. There was also, it would show you the wind and it would show you kind of which direction the wind was and where you were. So if it wasn't clear based on the colors, you would tell you where if you were on the green, the tee, the fairway, the bunker. If you went uh, into the waters, you would be reset. You could also go out of bounds, which was just like this brown exterior. But yeah, I had a lot of fun with Fuji Golf. I would say between Dr. Blackjack and Fuji Golf, I played more Fuji Golf. All right. Next up was Jigsawed, which was uh, a game developed by Tito Messarelli and released in 1991. And it is a jigsaw puzzle. In the game, uh, it would generate an image and then you choose your skill level and then the image would break apart based on that skill level. I remember the icon for jigsaw because it always showed up in kids space in the uh, little room where you had all of your different programs. <laughs> and I just remember seeing the the jigsaw one the uh, another game was rattler race this is one i remember pretty well it was created in 1991 by christopher lee fraley and it's based on the game snake which was originally released back in the 70s you play as a snake and you attempt to eat apples that are strewn across the level uh there are 30 levels in the game and the player can choose to play any of them throughout the game there are three main challenges other snakes who will also try to eat apples and ram into the player there is also bouncing balls uh that go through the level bouncing all around and just causing chaos and there is also the walls which if you run into a wall you die so you want to avoid snakes walls and bouncing balls you could actually turn off some of these challenges so you could turn off the bouncing balls or you could turn off the other snakes but you couldn't turn off the walls. So you always had walls. You could actually um, set it so that you had up to three enemy snakes or three bouncing balls. There's also various difficulty levels, uh, beginner, intermediate, advanced, and expert. And of course, the number of bouncing balls or snakes and stuff would vary depending on those difficulty levels. As you collect apples and exit levels, you gain points. And if you have a timer going, you'll actually gain more points. Some levels would have a time freeze pickup, which allows you to freeze time so that you could collect more apples within the given time period provided so the game appears in a window and uh you have like these green lines which represent the snake uh, and these blue lines represent the walls and the the apples actually look like to me i always thought they were cherries i, <laughs> I thought they I were cherries i didn't too. think they were apples but now that i'm kind of looking at them i guess i could see the has a little like bite taken out too i wonder if they were doing that as a reference to apple because it was a competitor so the snake is eating apple yeah, yeah that could be yeah, it i wouldn't be surprised but but yeah, that's Rattler Race. Next up is Chess. Chess was developed by David Norris and published by Microsoft. Not originally. The or very original no, version yes. of Chess is very old. Yes, sorry. The 1992 version of Chess for Windows 3.1 was developed by David Norris and published by Microsoft. In fact, there were better chess games out there if you really <laughs> liked chess at, really that were. were released in this time. Like Battle Chess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Battle Chess. Battle Chess was good. Or like Chess Master 2000. Ooh, yeah. And then there was, I think there was a Star Wars chess game. There was, yes. Anyway, if you really <laughs> liked chess, you could play other chess games. If you didn't really care, you could play the game that was on Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. The game emulated a chessboard, as it should, with the white pieces on the bottom, the black pieces on the top. And the checkerboard pattern was green and yellow. And this green and yellow is a unique green and yellow. <laughs> it, is, it looks so ugly. <laughs> it is like, it's like if you were presented with the, uh, all of the choices of green and all of the choices of yellow and you chose the ugliest. Yeah. That's, uh, it's like pea green and pea yellow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
the top, there are five buttons, back, forward, a force button, and a pause button, and a hint button. Beyond that, it was a, a pretty faithful recreation of chess. The next game is probably a game that maybe one day we'll even possibly revisit, but I'm going to do as best as I can without making this episode a million hours long, and that's Ski Free. Ski Free was developed by uh, Chris Peruri while he was working at Microsoft and released in 1991. The game, as you may remember, is controlling a little dude as he skis down a somewhat endless slope, uh, avoiding trees, other skiers, trying to hit those jumps, rocks, little dogs, and so on and so forth. Chris actually developed this game in his spare time for teaching himself how to really code in Microsoft because Microsoft was new at the time. And so he was like, hey, I should probably learn how to like use this software and like code in it. So he started building this thing for education and entertainment for himself that he also sometimes did at work. And one of the program managers who's who was in charge of the Microsoft Entertainment Pack saw it and said, hey, we need that. And it would go on to be included in the Microsoft Entertainment Pack. In fact, it was one of the few games that was ported to the Game Boy Color in 2001. Nice. And in 1993, Chris actually tried to develop a sequel for Ski Free. He wanted to do Ski Free 2. He wanted multiplayer. He wanted all sorts of things but he ended up losing the source code for the original game and he broke the sequel to the point where it was not playable because he was messing up the physics and he just abandoned the project that's unfortunate then he found it again in 2005 he discovered ski free and he created a new version of ski free which he then did a 32-bit version by compiling the new version. And it can actually be downloaded today at his website, skiihawk.net. So S-K-I dot I-H-O-C dot N-E-T. And you can go to that website. You can download the 32-bit version of Ski Free and it will open immediately in your current day operating system. In Ski Free, you start at the top of a ski course where you can either go down uh, one of the many course options. There was the freestyle course where you tried to get style points as you flipped and went off ramps and all of that. There was the uh, saloon course where you need to complete it in the quickest time. There was the tree saloon course, which was like the saloon course, but with trees. And you could also ignore all of them and just ski freely. So that the end of the course comes, you can keep skiing after that, but you're eventually eaten by an abdominal snowman. This snow monster is very scary, terrified me as a child, and is actually a set of four, according to the creator. Chris said, there are four monsters, each guarding one side of an imaginary rectangle with boundaries at two 1,000 meters down, 125 meters up, 1,000 meters left, and 1,000 meters right. And the slope wraps around from 2048 to negative 2048 in any direction. He is also aware of the exact pixel to meter, which if you, in case you were wondering, it's 16 pixels to a meter in Ski Free. And I love Ski Free. It's, it's, it's a great game. I love the dog in it. I love like everything about Ski Free, even the Abominable Snowman, which I, there was always like urban myths about like clicking on the er the abominable snowman or like doing the things at the right time i did learn that if you push f you go faster and if you go right 
and you push F, you can outrun the Abominable Snowman forever. If you do truly escape the Abominable Snowman, the game just resets, just as an FYI. Next up is Life Genesis. Uh, Life Genesis was developed by Jim Horn and released in 1991. This game was designed based on Conway's Game of Life, where you design an opening state with a color square, and then you watch the progression um, as it essentially generates a cellular automation. There's a way Conway's Game of Life works where if you have one square, it will automatically just die. But if you have multiple squares, it will start to propagate um, and you can kind of do stuff with it. In Life Genesis, you play against a computer. The player cells are blue and the computer cells are red. During competitive play, the player or computer can add a cell and delete an opponent's cell. The rules for generation continue to follow Conway's game of life. However, new cells would be populated based on the color of their neighboring cells with the winning color based on the majority color. Uh, And Life Genesis kind of just looks like a square with a bunch of squares inside of it. Each square is a a colored square. So you have a gray field and then you populate it with your cells basically and then they start to propagate when you run the game. It was always confusing to me. That game, I just didn't know what to do as a child. I literally just read about how game of life works and i'm confused by it and last but not least is rodent's revenge Uh, rodent's revenge was also created by christopher lee fraley who we mentioned not too long ago and released in 1991 rodent's revenge is a puzzle game and in the game you play as a mouse who needs to trap cats by pushing blocks around in order to win you need to trap all of the cats and when you trap the cats they become cheese and you can eat them for extra points which as i'm saying that is kind of messed up like you force some cats to turn into cheese then you eat them there are 50 levels in rodent's revenge and the game actually would get harder and harder as it progresses with the obstacles becoming more prevalent and also with the actual like board becoming more of a maze various other obstacles include sinkholes mouse traps flying balls of yarn and immovable blocks which will all factor into how the difficulty plays there is a ticking clock throughout the game at the top and when it hits a certain point more cats pretty much just appear on the board and will also increase the difficulty if you haven't yet rounded up those cats and turned them into cheese and to describe rodent's revenge it's a very simple looking game um so you have a a window which has a lot of green blocks on it those green blocks are the movable blocks occasionally you'll see these like blue colored i think they're supposed to be metal blocks those are the ones that are immovable and then you have your mouse in the center and then these yellow cats which kind of just scattered about the yellow cats will move around a bit as you move and that We'll do it. Uh, That is our Windows Entertainment Pack segment of this episode. Uh, Quite the long episode for this topic, but uh, I think we went into a lot of detail on things that we probably won't touch upon really ever again. Before we go from the Byway Pass, and before we stop talking about Windows Entertainment Pack, the game did sell very well. Uh, Over half a million copies were sold. Windows Entertainment packs would go on to sell really, really well. People enjoyed these type of games to the point where they would be eventually just bundled with like they would either come with your computer or they would just be pre-installed they're almost like part of the zeitgeist of windows many some of them are some of them have gone to the wayside and now i think we're ready to move on to byway pass but look forward to our next episode navigators uh so seth we're gonna get into the byway pass i'm gonna go first because i i said so so in this game seth you're going to witness the birth of a group of people who um we already know about you've heard of this group of people before um they 
are a, a, a gang and they operate uh, primarily out of various different cities in this world that it's set in. And uh, they, they often get into conflict with other gangs. In this game, you're going to see the birth of how they started out. Um, you're going to get to explore a brand new world. One of the biggest worlds that this game uh, series has ever done. And it is not only a sandbox, but also a uh, like an open world action game. I'm very excited to hear. This game is Saints Row. Oh, a new Saints Row? Due out August 23rd, 2022 by Deep Silver. Wow. Uh, let's take a look. Uh, we'll be right back. Uh, so we're back. Uh, so I, I looked, I watched the trailer for Saint Rose 2022. It looks uh, interesting. I, I would like to see more gameplay footage. I don't think there's a lot of actual gameplay footage out. There's just a three minute trailer. So I'd like to see more gameplay footage. I am interested. I do like the Saints Row series. I think I'm kind of looking forward to a game like this, especially with the dearth of lack of content when it comes from like Grand Theft Autos and stuff like that, that maybe like a modern open world game would be fun to play like saints row or grand theft auto 6 um, whichever wants to come out first so i'll put this down as a wait to see gameplay footage and kind of go from there that sounds good are you ready oh i'm ready so this comes from the co-creators of dishonored and prey okay but it's a little different from what they usually do it's not first person it's a isometric and you have to play as some heroes that are connected kind of interestingly and you have to pull back the layers of this onion of this world would you like to know more yes it is weird west developed by wolfeye studios and being published by devolver digital due out in march 31st of 2022 and we're going to take a short break while zach looks up the game So Weird West, uh, as Seth mentioned, is uh, being developed by Wolfeye Studios and published by our good friends over at Devolver Digital. But yeah, it, it looks like a really cool uh, RPG game set in an isometric setting. It's uh, set in the Wild West or the Weird West, if you would. I, I'm really interested in this game. I kind of want to get my hands on it first before I decide whether or not I want to buy it. So I'm going to say wait uh, until I can maybe try it, maybe a demo. Um, who knows? Maybe this game will be at PAX. I know Devolver has been at PAX, so I'm sure they'll have a copy of it. Um, but yeah, I'll give it a shot um, and see if I like it. If I do, maybe I'll pull the, the six-shooter trigger and uh, I will uh, buy it. Uh, Zach, you want to rapidly rap? Yeah, so uh, if you want to tell us all about your memories of the windows entertainment pack you can email classic gaming brothers at gmail.com or you can reach out to us via our social media channels facebook instagram twitter and twitch our facebook instagram and twitch are classic gaming brothers our twitter is cg brothers pod uh, feel free to reach out to us if you do have any questions comments and concerns who knows you might even get a chance to win a free video game that's right a free game that you can play um that isn't one from the windows entertainment pack or is it it might be one from the windows entertainment pack no promises anyway be sure to also uh like subscribe rate us on all the various podcasting applications out there that would be great and with that i think that's uh i think that's it unless i'm forgetting anything don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been seth and i've been zach and we've been the classic gaming brothers that's right that's right